Thank you, Peggy, for filling in for Chris. Well, he's not here. We appreciate your willingness to do that. Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Some of you are thinking, oh no, was I asleep? Did I miss the end of 1 Timothy and we're already into 2 Timothy? What happened? Yeah, we, we finished it all last week where you were gone, right? This might be a little preview of where we might go next. I figured 2 Timothy would be a natural next book after 1 Timothy. They're kind of together in the Bible. It makes sense, right? I'm still thinking and praying about that. But uh, last week, before our, our Bible conference, I had the privilege of going out to the Master's Seminary where uh, I graduated about 10 years ago. It's hard to believe. Let's see, nine, yeah, about 10, 11 years ago. Feeling old now. Um, but uh, they offer a winterum class every uh, January, and they invite the alumni to come back and take the class free. It's one of those dream classes where you just have to audit it. You don't have to do any of the work. You know, you just can sit there and take it all in. So uh, anyway, I've seen a lot of these come and go and never had a desire to, to, to go out at this point. But uh, this last week, uh, they had invited one of my heroes to be there. Uh, you have heard this name because I quote him all the time. His name is Dr. Kent Hughes, and he's the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, he's one of my favorite commentators, just a very godly man. Many of you have read his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. Uh, he has one, Disciplines of a Godly Woman, for ladies. Or I guess his wife wrote that, excuse me. Uh, Barbara wrote that. And then they have one called Disciplines of a Godly Family, which I'm just about done reading. Uh, it was kind of the airplane book, you know. You have to have a book in the air- airport and on the airplane, that was it. And just a super, super book. But I was so blessed to be able to uh, sit under this man for a few days. And he was supposed to be teaching 2 Corinthians, and, uh, which he did. But in a roundabout way, because he spent the majority of his time talking about his passion, which is also my passion, and that is expository preaching, teaching verse by verse through the books of the Bible. And so uh, it was just exciting to, to hear and listen to a man who has made that his life's passion, uh, even to the point where he's writing commentaries uh, so that other men like myself can benefit from those in our study. Um, to, to hear his heart on preaching. And uh, that really was the highlight for me. I, I learned a few things out of Second Corinthians which were memorable and hopefully will help me in a future study that we might do here. But uh, the thing I walked away with was just a greater appreciation for the commitment that we have here at Lakeside Bible Church to preach expositionally. And the other, again, again, the word exposition simply means explanation. That we go to a passage of scripture and we explain what it means and show how it applies to our lives. That's biblical exposition as opposed to jumping around all over scripture and read a bunch of verses and never really explaining that verse and its context. And, and uh, we just kind of zip around and pull verses together and make a little topical message. Um, the thing he reminded us of in class was that uh, preaching expositionally or expository preaching is really rooted and grounded in our view of the scriptures. What drives me as a pastor to preach expositionally? What, what, what drives us as a church to be committed to expository preaching? Well, it's really all comes down to our view of the scriptures. And if we believe what we say we believe about this book, then it demands one thing, expository preaching. 
There's no other way to preach if you understand what the Bible teaches about the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, which I'm going to explain that phrase uh, in just a moment. But in light of that, uh, the, the verse that just came rushing to my mind as we were, I was listening to him, and he was emphasizing this verse, was found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is where we find the most famous statement in the whole Bible about the authority and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. And I'd like to read it for you, and then we'll pray and uh, talk about it. Let's begin reading in verse 12, just to give us the context. This is 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul's writing to Timothy, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then our text, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome book that you have entrusted to us. And here we find in that book your greatest statement on the character and the nature and the power of your word. And Father, I pray this morning that you would grip us with the reality of what you have said in these two verses that you would, by your Spirit, illuminate our minds to help us understand exactly what these words mean and how they apply and relate to our lives today as individuals and as a church. And Father, I pray that your Word would have its way in our lives this morning. Lord, I even include our students as they're up Uh, in Huntsville this morning, that that the word would have its way in their hearts this morning, that those who are not yet saved would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior this morning. Those that are Christians, Lord, that they would be grabbed a hold of by your word and your spirit and, and recommitted and rededicated, Father, to living life for Christ and radical obedience to you. And so, Lord, come now and convict us, comfort us, Most of all, conform us, we ask, to the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. In 1995, there was a conversation recorded between a U.S. naval ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. It went like this. Canadians, please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, negative. You'll have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier U.S. Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We're accompanied with three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say again, that's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) 
we can assume that that U.S. captain wisely realized that neither the level of his rank or the size of his ship mattered at that point, did it? His only choice was to submit to the authority of the Canadians in that lighthouse. Why? Because you can't argue with an immovable object. Regardless of what the captain said or did, the lighthouse was going to stand firm, and consequently, the Canadians had the last word. Well, the Bible is like that lighthouse. And the captain is like all those who arrogantly and defiantly question the authority of God's word. And it really doesn't matter how strong you are, or how powerful you are, or how much money you have, or experience you have, or, or what your rank is, or what your position is in life, or how, you're, how determined you might be. If you disregard the warnings of the word of God and go barreling on ahead through life, your end will be disastrous. For centuries, the Bible has been viciously and relentlessly attacked by countless critics and movements. And yet today it still stands firm and will continue standing firm regardless of what anyone says or what anyone does. It is the Word of God. And the Word of God will always be the Word of God. It doesn't need us to be here to affirm the fact that it's the Word of God. If none of us showed up today, this would still be the Word of God. Amen? And yet all those who oppose the Bible as God's Word must wisely and humbly submit to its authority in their life. And all of those who have submitted themselves to it and allow their life and ministry to be controlled by it can stand confidently and can stand courageously against anyone who challenges their commitment to the unmovable, unchangeable standard of God's word. And that's exactly what Paul wanted Timothy to know when he wrote this second letter to him. We know already about this relationship between Paul and Timothy from our study that we're doing in 1 Timothy. But just to remind you that Paul had trained Timothy and placed him as the pastor of the church that he had planted in Ephesus. And there was a lot of difficulties that were going on in the church at the time that tested Timothy's commitment as a pastor. There were certain evil men in the church who opposed the truth of the Word of God, and they persecuted Timothy, and they were coming against Timothy. And so it had been very easy for this young pastor to be intimidated by the opposition and the persecution that he was facing, and the attacks that were coming against him, primarily against the Word of God. And so Paul wrote Timothy a letter to encourage him to remain faithful to what he had been taught by his mother and grandmother and by Paul himself, to not back down on his convictions. And so Paul reminded him of the role that the Word of God played in his life and his ministry in order to renew his confidence and courage to carry out God's work in that place. In verse 15 he says, Remember that from childhood... Well, I should say, look at verse 14. He says, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of. In other words, this, 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 what he's about to say here is all about him continuing on in the work, not giving up, not quitting, not getting pushed off center. He says, but continue on, carry on. Why? Because you've been convinced of the things that you learned from childhood. That is namely the sacred writings, the word of God, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
And then this, this exhortation and encouragement really climaxes in verses 16 and 17 where Paul speaks so concisely and comprehensively about the nature and the function of God's word. This is the, 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 the best passage in the whole Bible that talks about the word of God itself. And in this passage, Paul affirms three basic truths about God's word that encourage us and empower us to confidently and courageously carry out God's work. The three truths are these. The word of God is, number one, infallible. That's the first part of verse 16. Number two, the word of God is invaluable. That's the second part of verse 16. And then thirdly, the word of God is inexhaustible. That's verse 17. Well, let's look this morning at those three truths, these three truths about God's word that encourage us and empower us to be faithful to carry out God's work for us in our lives and in this church. First of all, the word of God is infallible. The word of God is infallible. And here in the first part of verse 16, Paul is emphasizing the authority of the Bible. He says all scripture, every scripture is inspired by God. Well, Let's talk about this word infallible for a minute. Okay, What does it mean to be infallible? It means that something is incapable of error. That it's never wrong. It cannot fail. It's reliable. It's dependable. It's perfect. That's what it means to be infallible. None of us are infallible, are we? No. Why? Because we're not perfect. The reason why God's word is infallible is because it was written by an infallible God. A perfect and faithful God who cannot fail. And that's when it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. It was breathed out by God. The Bible is God's revelation to man. And God wrote the Bible so we could know what He wanted us to know, so we could be who He wanted us to be. You've heard me say that a few times, haven't you? But in the Bible, God reveals to us who He is. And he, he exposes who we are and our sin. And He explains His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And He demands us to respond to Him in repentance and faith. And the way God communicated all these truths was through the process of inspiration. That's a, a term that's used to describe how God gave us His Word. Let me give you a simple definition of Inspiration, or the doctrine of inspiration. Simply this. Inspiration is the process where God, by His Holy Spirit, superintended human authors using their individual personalities, backgrounds, and writing styles to compose and record His Word without error in the original manuscripts. In other words, there may have been a few copying mistakes along the way in the Bible we have, but the original manuscripts that were given directly from God to those men, who the, the authors of Scripture, they're without error. So it's the process of what we call dual authorship. Who wrote the Bible, God or men? Yes, the answer is, right? You say, how does that work? Well, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. And this is a, a, a key passage about the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This is an important passage you should have noted in your Bible, underlined, highlighted something, just so you can 
find it again. Second Peter chapter one. This is probably the second best verse in the Bible that talks about the Bible and provides its authority and its authenticity. This is Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. He says, "But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation." For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So it says no prophecy of Scripture, nothing in Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, Probably a better way to to translate that word interpretation, because that's a little confusing, is that that it says this, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own origination. In other words, nobody just thought it up and said, well, I think I'm just going to write this. It didn't, no guy sat down and thought, I'm going to just write this book. It says, in fact, how it happened. He says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Nobody sat down and decided they were going to write it. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so Peter's describing exactly how this process of inspiration happened. The words didn't originate from the minds and the writers, or the minds of the writers. They wrote as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along or moved along was a word used to describe a ship being carried along by the wind. It's an interesting analogy there. In other words, the writers of Scripture hoisted their sails and the Holy Spirit breathed out air into them, if you will, and moved their ship in the direction he wanted it to go. And so they wrote down word for word exactly what he wanted written. That's what we mean when we say the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That it wasn't just the ideas and the concepts. He didn't say, Paul, say, hey, Paul, write something about marriage. So Paul got down and started writing about marriage. Or, hey, write something about sin. He didn't give them just general ideas or, or basic concepts. He gave them every specific word that he wanted to write. That's what we mean by verbal inspiration. That's every word. You can look at 1 Corinthians 2.13 where Paul talks about how he was taught Not ideas or concepts, but he was taught words from the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about plenary, we're talking about the whole thing. When the verbal plenary inspiration means every word and every part, the whole thing is the Word of God, not just parts of it. The whole thing is the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation. By the way, this is just a little side note here. If we truly believe that God inspired His Word word for word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, book by book, doesn't it make sense that that's the best way to study it? And that's the best way to teach it? Is the way he gave it to us? Not just pulling a word over here, pulling a word over here, pulling a word out here, down here, over here. But give it word for word. Why do we take so much time on, okay, the first word here is therefore. Now let's talk about therefore for a little bit. You know, what's it there for? We talk about, we build the context, we bring it over here, and there's a word Paul. Let's talk about Paul for a little bit, and let's look at this word, uh, you know, sanctification. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Why do we spend so much time talking about sometimes just one word? Because that one word was the word that God wanted in his Bible. And so we need to talk about that word. That's how important it is. Well, not everyone has that conviction that the Bible has been inspired word for word. Uh, there was a group of guys uh, that were very popular uh, about a decade ago, and I think they're probably still around doing their deal. But it's called the Jesus Seminar. You ever heard of these guys, the Jesus Seminar? Pretty fascinating concept. There were some scholars who their common ground was that they doubted 
the reliability of the words of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels. So that was kind of their point that they had together. And so that what they decided to do is they would meet annually to discuss those texts that they thought were in question. And so for each statement ascribed to Christ, they would vote on whether or not they thought that that was actually something Jesus said or was that something that one of the New Testament writers put into Jesus' mouth. And this is the really um, scholarly way they went about their voting. They had four marbles, okay? Uh, they had a red marble, which indicated that he definitely spoke them. They had a, a black marble, which that was their way of saying that they believed that he definitely did not say them. And then there was a pink marble, which was to signify that he probably spoke them, though there's some question. And then there was a gray marble that was supposed to symbolize that Jesus probably did not speak them, though it's possible that he might have. So they were sitting around this table, literally, with their little four marbles, and every time they'd read a text, okay, what do you guys think? Well, let's go with the red marble. Let's go with the gray marble. Let's go with the pink marble. And they even went so far as to take their, the results of their voting and tallied it all up, and they actually have a, a Jesus seminar Bible that's coded in red, black, pink, and gray. And so that you can know as you're reading through the Gospels, well, he definitely said this because it's red letter. Or he definitely didn't say this because it's black. And these guys say, well, maybe he didn't say it because it's pink. They put it in pink or gray. Well, the irony of this whole thing is that they, their whole goal that they had stated was they wanted to strengthen people's faith in the Bible. So that people could read through and they, they, they would know what was reliable and what wasn't. What they failed to understand is that the whole thing is reliable. And we don't sit in judgment on the Word of God. The Word of God sits in judgment on us. Every word is dependable. It's a trustworthy standard of what to believe and how to live. The Bible is infallible. It will last forever, long after the, the foolish, arrogant people in liberal Christian schools and seminaries and are playing with their marbles. It's going to last. In fact, it was Jesus himself who gave this testimony about the divine authority and eternality of Scripture. Remember this verse? This is Matthew 5.18. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if you can't really appreciate this verse unless you've taken Hebrew. Okay? Not that Hebrew has anything to do with interpreting this verse, other than when it says that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. He's referring at that point to the law, which was all in Hebrew, right? And there's a little thing in the Hebrew language called a yod, which is like a little, a little apostrophe. Just a tiny little, little hash mark. And I'll tell you what, after taking Hebrew, it's like hieroglyphics. Man, I broke so many pencils in Hebrew class, I was just going, I can't figure this out. And uh, it would just frustrate me because it was so difficult to comprehend this language. And Because you had to keep all these little vowel points. You know, there was the letters, which that was bad enough. But then there's all these little vowel points where there was dots, and there was a little yod, and there was these things. And that totally changed what a word was or wasn't. And so what Jesus is saying is not even that smallest little uh, apostrophe, that little comma, that little period in his word shall pass away. Until it's all come true. That, you want to talk about verbal plenary inspiration, that includes the punctuation marks. 
if you will, in the Hebrew language. So the bottom line is, again, we don't sit in judgment on the Word. The Word sits in judgment on us. And our belief in the inspiration of Scripture causes us to believe, as B.B. Warfield said, who was the great uh, president theologian of Princeton. Uh, it's not much like that anymore, Harry, is it? Um, it's drifted long ways away from B.B. Warfield's days. He said this, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Do you believe that? When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And I might add this, when God speaks, we listen. And we do what he says. The only proper response when God speaks is, is to obey. I don't know if you as parents deal with this in your house as we do ours. Sometimes I'll, we'll say something. Kelly and I will say, okay, you need to go do this. You need to get in the van or you need to get your teeth brushed. You need to go, come inside. Or you need to wash your hands. And for some reason, we never taught our kids how to ask this question, but they say, why? Your kids ever do that? Is that just our kids? Our demon possessed? No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. You guys aren't demon possessed. One's sleeping over there, though. But, but they'll ask why. And you know what? Sometimes I'll just respond and I'll say, you know why? Because I said so. And that's not because I want to be a mean dictator. You know, do what I said because I said it. I want to teach my kids what it means to live under authority. That when someone in authority over them tells them to do something, they don't protest and they don't procrastinate. Our little deal is you do it right away with the right attitude. In that biblical submission to authority, whether it's your parents, your, your, your husband, your boss, your coach, your, your president, your police officer that's pulled you over on the side of the road, right? You, you say, yes, sir. You obey without protesting, without procrastinating. And so when God says something, we don't ask why. I have to tell you, yesterday we were shooting some baskets on this basketball court, and, and this is kind of a gross illustration, but it's an illustration of what I'm saying about there's a, rebel, there's a rebel in all of us. You know, and we're playing along, and, and uh, Jacob looks down on the ground and sees this dried up bird poop, okay, coming down. He sits there, and he sits on the ground, and, and he goes, Daddy, look, somebody's spit. I said, no, that's not spit. I said, that's bird poop. He says, no, it's not, Daddy, it's spit. I said, Jacob, I said, I know what that is, okay? That's not spit. And he wanted to argue with me that he thought he knew what that was, and I didn't know. So we got to the whole discussion, okay, who's, who, was, who was born before you, and who knows more than you? And we got, I'm going, what am I doing? I'm talking to my five-year-old here, trying to convince him that I'm his authority. You know, but, but see, that's the issue. All of us have a rebel heart, and we want to argue with God, don't we? We want to argue with God. God says it's that, and we say, no, it's not. God says that's sin. No, it's not. You know, there's that. I appreciate Don Kisser reminding us of that um, famous little or popular little phrase, God said in his word, I believe it in my heart that settles it in my mind. You ever seen that on bumper, sir? God said in his word, I believe it in my heart that settles it in my mind. Well, you know what? That's not true. You, you, that's much more biblical to say God said it in his word that settles it. Whether you and I believe it or not is irrelevant. If God said it, that settles it. And that's what we mean when we say that the Bible has absolute authority. Doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what the Pope says, doesn't matter what anybody says, God's word is final. He always has the last word. What he says goes, period. Why? Because his word is infallible. It's perfect. 
Samuel Chadwick, who was an old Methodist minister from England, said this. Quote, he said, I've guided my life by the Bible for more than 60 years. And I tell you, there's no book like it. It's a miracle of literature, a perennial spring of wisdom, a wonder of surprises, a revelation of mystery, an infallible guide of conduct, and an unspeakable source of comfort. Pay no attention to people who discredit it, for I tell you, they speak without knowledge. It is the word of God itself. Amen? So first, Paul wants to remind Timothy that the word of God is infallible. Secondly, he wants to remind Timothy that the word of God is invaluable. Is invaluable. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So here the emphasis is on the, 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 not so much the authority of the Bible as it is in the first phrase, but now the profitability of the Bible. When we talk about something being invaluable, we, we, we mean that it has value that's too great to measure. It's, it's priceless. And what makes the Bible invaluable to us? Well, it's, it's profitability. The reason why it's invaluable is because it's profitable. It's useful. It's helpful for four basic things, for, for four basic purposes, or it meets four basic needs. You can see them right there in the text. What are they? Teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. That pretty much covers everything we need, don't you think? Teaching is... Everything we need to know and believe, that's doctrine. So the Word of God is profitable to teach us what is right, what is wrong, what we should believe, what's true, what's false. That's teaching. Reproof is confronting us and convicting us and rebuking us and exposing our sin and showing us areas that aren't pleasing the Lord. It serves that purpose in our lives. That's reproof. But then it doesn't just leave us there. It offers correction. Which is the solution. It, it sets us right. It gets us back on track. It, it helps us get back up on our feet after we stumble. It restores our soul. And then finally, it trains us in righteousness. The word for training there in the original is the word that they used to raise a child. Pedia. And so God uses his word to raise us like a child, to discipline us and to nurture us in the instruction of the Lord. You know, I liken the Bible to our map for life. That's really what the Bible is. That's what, that's what he's saying here. And if you picture the Bible as a map and we're on a path, the map shows us the path to be on. That's the teaching. And it shows us when we get off the path, that's reproof. And then it shows us how to get back on the path, that's correction. And then it shows us how to stay on the path and we not veer off again. That's training in righteousness. So all that to say, the Bible has everything we need. It's an all-purpose tool that works in our lives with great versatility and great efficiency. If you turn back to Psalm 19... which is probably second only to Psalm 119 in the Psalms, talking about the Word of God and praising how wonderful the Word of God is. 
It's easy to remember Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. But Psalm 19, verse 7. Notice what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. You see that? Seven titles for the word of God. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And there's seven characteristics there. There's, it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. And then there's seven effects of the word. It restores the soul, it makes wise and simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever. And because the word is all that, notice what he says in verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Another great passage in the word of God about the word of God. So the usefulness and the effectiveness of the Bible in our lives makes it invaluable to us. And for those who have experienced the powerful effects of the living and active word in our lives, we treat the Bible as valuable. And we wouldn't trade it for the world, would we? In Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's an account of a, of a man named Martyr, or excuse me, a martyr named Timothy, who was commanded by the governor to give up his copy of the Bible to be burned. This is what he said. Had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the word of God. That's how committed that guy was to his Bible. That if I had kids, I'd rather give my kids first than I would my Bible. Well, the governor, in response, ordered his eyes to be burned out with hot irons so that at least his Bible was useless to him because he knew he couldn't take it away. And so he made it so he couldn't read it. I appreciated Don mentioning Martin Luther, how he would rock in his chair with his Bible, holding it to his chest because it had become so precious to him because it was through his study of the Word of God that he had realized that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not works. And that liberated his soul from trying to earn his way and work his way to heaven. The Bible had become valuable to him. So the word of God is infallible, infallible, it's invaluable. And then finally, the word of God is inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. Verse 17, it says that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here, Paul is emphasizing now not the authority of Scripture, per se, and not the profitability of Scripture, but now he's, he's talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. That it has everything we need. It's inexhaustible. It, it can't be used up. It can't be emptied. It's a continuous supply of fuel for life and food for our souls. He says that the man of God, that was a technical term we're going to see as we wrap up First Timothy here in a couple weeks, um, 
to, to describe a prophet, the man of God. It was, it was one of Paul's favorite ways to address Timothy. But I think it can also apply to every Christian. He says that the man of God, that the talking about Timothy specifically, the prophet, but also any believer may be adequate, which means complete or perfect, sufficient, equipped for every good work. That word equipped has the idea of being completely outfitted for a trip. You think about somebody when you're going on a trip and you need to make sure you have everything you need for that trip, a traveler, an explorer, and, and he goes to an outfitter and, and he gets everything he needs for his trip. He gets the tent, he gets the lantern, he gets the shoes, he gets the clothes, he gets the food, he gets the matches, he gets everything, he has everything he needs for his trip. He's completely outfitted. He's fully supplied, or you could think about it as, as having a fully furnished home. We understand that maybe a little better, right? Your home is fully furnished. You don't even have to look at the sails anymore for star and fingers, right? Because you your, your house is fully furnished. You have everything you need. Couches and chairs and, 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 a, and an armoire and, and, and a bed and, and a hutch and a desk. And you have everything you need. And that's what he's saying. That, that the word of God causes a man or a woman of God to be adequate, equipped, completely outfitted for every good work. Timothy had a lot of work left to do in that church in Ephesus. And Paul was reminding him that God's word supplied everything he needed to meet all the demands of his task. And so it is with every one of us as Christians. What does Ephesians 2.10 say? Remember? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And see, God's word, he doesn't, he doesn't call us to do something that doesn't also provide the means to do it. And he's provided the means to do all the good works God has in mind for us to do as Christians through the word of God. And so God's word fully equips us to do these works. I love 2 Peter chapter 1. Talking about the sufficiency of Christ. But I think the principle there spills over into the sufficiency of the word of Christ, the word of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How do we know God and His, in Christ? How do we know about them? Through the word of God, right? Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. In other words, God's through His Word and through Christ, has provided everything we need, all the necessary resources for us to live godly lives that are pleasing to Him and to do what He wants us to do. We don't need to look anywhere else or add anything else to Scripture to help us. It's sufficient to meet our needs. It's it's an inexhaustible resource in and of itself. It's not the Bible and something else or the Bible and something else. It's the Bible, period. It's all we need. C.H. Spurgeon, who stands head and shoulders as the one who may have contributed more material about the Bible than anyone else in church history, just a massive amount of material, wrote over 700 books in his lifetime. And yet, in spite of this incredible output of God's Word through his writings, he said this, quote, The quarry of Holy Scripture is inexhaustible. I seem hardly to have begun to labor in it. 
He knew that he was just scratching the surface, digging with his little pail and shovel in the quarry of God's word. I like what someone else said. Quote, the Bible is so deep that theologians can never touch the bottom, yet so shallow that babes cannot drown. Isn't that true? I mean, there's guys in seminaries who have been studying the Bible all their lives, and they still haven't got to the bottom yet. But there's some of you that are just baby Christians. You just committed your life to Christ, and you're kind of swimming around in the thing, and you're okay. You know, because it's just, that's the word of God. It's, it's inexhaustible. And so the Bible is, number one, infallible. The Bible is invaluable. And it's also inexhaustible. And it's these truths about God's word that should drive us and motivate us to live a certain way and to minister a certain way and to preach a certain way and to have the kind of church we have, do church in a certain kind of way because of what we believe about the Bible. And it should give us confidence and, and courage to stand up against anything that might be coming down the pike at us, even if it is a U.S. Navy ship. Why? Because we're in the lighthouse of God's Word. A couple days ago, we had the privilege of watching that new movie that just came out on video, Luther. If you haven't seen it yet, go rent it and watch it. They do a super job of retelling the story, as best I can tell with great accuracy, of the life of Martin Luther. The Catholic monk who is best known for sparking the Protestant Reformation when he stood up against the Catholic Church in that day and wrote the 95 Thesis that exposed the heresy and the hypocrisy of the indulgence system, which is basically teaching people that you can buy your way to heaven. And they go around, a coin for Christ, a coin for Christ. Every time you drop a coin in the coffer, you know, a soul springs from purgatory. And so you can buy your uncle and aunt and your mom and dad and grandma and grandpa their way out of purgatory if you give us this money so we can build this great big church. Very heretical, very hypocritical. And, and he saw all these people. The movie does a great job showing how he got, he came to the place where he was watching this religion that he was in that was forcing these people and telling them that they could earn their way to heaven by all these, by giving money and going to see all these relics and climbing up the steps and working their way, trying to earn their way to heaven and, and fa- earn their favor with God. And he came to a place where he realized that's not what the Bible taught. And so he wrote these things down and began uh, writing and confronting the church and what they were teaching with the Word of God. And so he was excommunicated from his church where he was the priest in Wittenberg, Germany. And later he was summoned before the deed of worms, which was kind of like a council of men that he needed to stand before and give an account for what he had taught. And he was asked, all, it was, here's the table, and if you've seen the movie, you remember this, the table with all of his writings on it. And they, he was standing there before it. And the man came up and he said, are these all your books? Have you, did you write all these books? He said, yes, I did. He said, will you recant of all these writings? In other words, will you deny that you've written them? Will you say that they're in error and that you're wrong and you, are, and you think they're all, all wrong? Well, when he was asked to deny what he believed to be the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures... This is what Luther said. With great confidence and great courage, 
in the face of looming death for his unwillingness to recant, he said, quote, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. God help me. Here I stand. And of course, that's the climax of the movie. That's the climax of, in many ways, church history. The beginning of the Reformation. A man who was willing to take his stand on the Word of God. Where do you stand today? Are you, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, being tossed here and there by the waves of the world and carried about by every wind of doctrine? Just kind of getting thrown all over the place because you have no sure footing, you have no anchor? Or are you confidently and courageously standing firm on the immovable rock of God's Word? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a good reminder this morning of why we're Lakeside Bible Church. Why we're Christians who actually bring their Bibles to church. Why we're Christians that work really hard at trying to have a quiet time every day where we want to spend time in your word every day. Because we know that this is not just a book, this is our life. It's our food, it's our fuel, and without it we'll die. And so, Father, I pray that you would renew our commitment to the solid rock of your word that we would never waver, that we would never compromise, that we would never waffle. But Father, if it's in the Word, then that needs to settle in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. And that, Father, Your Word would always be held up high in this church by the way we preach, by the way we counsel, by the way we fellowship, by the way we pray, by the way we worship, by the way we live, that Lord, we would be known as a a church that has a high view of you and a high view of your word, and that you would help us live out the living word in our lives every day in very practical ways, Father, that people would, would be convinced that the Bible is true because they see it in our lives and how it's able to transform us into who you want us to be. Father, this is the work that you need to do in our hearts. And so we come to you and ask that you would be gracious and merciful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.